that Christ overcomes the barriers. I think Christ has a wonderful way of, you know, purifying a culture and, and, and you know, maintaining its essence. Uh, and yet enabling that culture to link with other cultures so that somehow there can be integration as well as uh, individual cultures. And, and we see that, uh, you know, in churches today. Uh, it's very interesting in churches, isn't it? Because, I mean, on a European level, I think politicians and you know, those who are ideological about multiculturalism have, have said that that, uh, as an experiment, has failed. Uh, whereas here we're, we're experiencing something uh, of what we believe will be true multiculturalism in heaven. And also for those of us who have grown up in different cultures. I mean, the number of cultures that have kind of converged in my life, uh, uh, probably not as many as some of you, but you know, I, I, I then moved to Holland from Indonesia with that background and uh, then came over here to study theology and met my wife who's West Indian. Uh, and you know, that's brought a whole new dimension to the family, especially when she's angry. Uh, <laughs> But I, I've often thought there's, there's a lot of a focus on third culture kids or missionary kids or, you know, in fact, the kind of people that represent our world today uh, because so many of us have, have a kind of mixture of cultures which, which sort of begin to shape our identity. And for me, the, one of the big things about being a Christian is that Christ does that, you know, in my life. I can see it in churches and in countries, but he does that in my life as well. So, so it's brilliant to, to be here this morning. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Uh, so... Anyway, yeah, yeah from, from, from those kind of points of view, uh, really good to be here. I want to start just by highlighting what Richard uh, sort of brought out in the little test that we did, that there are some great things happening around the world today. Lindsey Brown said a while back that, uh, Lindsey Brown who works with IFES and the Lausanne movement, said that he believes the impact of the gospel from the mid-90s until today uh, is as profound as the impact of the gospel in the days of the Reformation which is saying something. I'm not a, histo- uh, uh, I'm not a, a kind of Christian hi- uh, historian, so I, I, I don't know exactly whether that's true or not, but from his perspective, uh, he thinks that that's true. Uh, I mean, places like China, which are now well-documented, up to possibly 100 million believers, uh, and one of the fastest-growing uh, countries in terms of people coming to faith. The Times ran an article a while back about the people in China who believe in Jesus now outnumbering uh, those who are members of the Communist Party. And if you think that the Communist Party's focus, other than spreading communism as an ideology, was all about ex- extinguishing the church, it is a phenomenal turnaround uh, within the last 50 years or so. It's absolutely phenomenal that turnaround. <laughs> just maybe saying that to myself. I was thinking of this man who was walking and leaping and praising God and think I should probably be doing that a bit more often too when I think about things like that. And, and, and you know, some other stats as well. In, in Africa, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, there were 7.5 million people who would have registered themselves as, as Christian believers, nominally or genuinely. Now, that number is 500 million. So in the course of 100 years, the number's gone up from 7.5 million to, uh, to 500 million. Probably 200 million of those uh, would be evangelical believers. So South America, Africa, China, you know, th- th- there are amazing things happening. India uh, is now the country in the world that sends out more missionaries than any other country in the world. Uh, that's if you include the missionaries they send within their borders. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal country and God is doing amazing things there. We've just had a family go out to Uttar Pradesh. Uh, and in that single province, uh, they're working with 256 million people. It's incredible, isn't it? And the kind of uh, the Hindu melee 
and all that happens there and the people that are finding Christ. Incredibly, this, this last year, people have been coming out of the Ganges uh, in, in, in the kind of melee celebrations and festivities uh, and saying, we've washed ourselves ritualistically in the Ganges, but we don't feel clean. How can we become truly clean and washed? You know, isn't that amazing? Uh, and churches are forming and they're getting letters from people who are saying, we know about Jesus and he has cleansed us, but we don't know about anything else. Can you send someone to tell us, please? So phenomenal things are happening all over the world. But I want to say this this morning, really, and this, is, this, 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 this kind of feeds out of that point that all these great things are happening in the world. We live, at least I, I guess uh, many of us here this morning, live in Western Europe. Uh, I live in Swindon, (laughs) so, you know, homing in even further. And in Swindon, it wouldn't be possible to say that that kind of thing is happening. In Western Europe, it's not possible to say that that kind of thing is happening. People speak about Western Europe as, you know, as the dark continent and a a continent with great, great social, uh, economic, uh, political, but especially spiritual needs. That's where we live. But but, but, but it, it it might be tempting to be discouraged uh, uh, about the, 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 the gospel prospects and the work where we are. Uh, it might be tempting to want to be somewhere else, you know, maybe in Africa or, or China or where the action is. Uh, but when I read the Bible, it seems to me, I mean, and certainly in Acts, which we're going to come to in a minute, the, the idea that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth uh, is kind of uh, encapsulated in this sentence here. The light that shines the brightest at home shines the furthest. So, in a sense, I don't want to encourage you necessarily to go to another country this morning. Although, if you'd like to, please come and have a chat afterwards. Uh, but what I would like you to do is to shine as brightly as you can here, whatever the circumstances are. And the reason why we're in Acts is because that's exactly what happens in Acts. Uh, it certainly wasn't easy in the first century. But what we see uh, about the early Christians, and particularly in Acts 3, 4, and 5, is that there is something so unstoppable about their desire to want to live and speak for Jesus. And that's really what I want us to think about this morning. So we have these great things happening all over the world. Uh, Within that kind of bright picture, we have our own lives and our own contexts, which often are dark and challenging, even seemingly overwhelming to extended times. The early Christians, after Pentecost, go into this kind of first few wobbly steps of the existence of the early church in chapters 3, 4, and 5. But we read there at the beginning and at the end, and I think this partly frames those chapters. In chapter 4, verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking. So the religious authorities are warning them, are threatening them, are, are, are commanding them on the basis of their religious authority to stop speaking. But they say, we cannot stop speaking. We're compelled to speak about Jesus. And in chapter 5, towards the end of this, 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 you know, this, this picture, we see that the that people are like this, but we seem to struggle uh, grasping uh, the wonder of the gospel to the extent that it compels us that it motivates us, that it drives us to want to live and speak for Jesus, even if everything around us is saying, don't do that, uh, on, an, on an authoritative basis. So I want to ask the question this morning, why were they so enthusiastic? And I'm looking at chapters 3, 4, and 5, and I just want to pick out four things 
uh, from those chapters. Uh, chapter 6 onwards, the church kind of gets underway, uh, and there's a whole new sort of uh, uh, focus. Uh, but here, in this kind of embryonic state, uh, where the church is under great pressure uh, socially and, uh, and politically and from the religious authorities, we see this, this brightness in Jerusalem, which then rings out, doesn't it? Samaria, Judea, uh, and uh, to the ends of the earth. So why was it that they were so enthusiastic? That's, that's our first reading. And I want to suggest that the first reason is that the early church, uh, the disciples, the apostles, uh, understood and experienced transformed lives. Uh, they saw people being changed and they had undergone incredible change themselves. Uh, if you think about uh, what Peter was before Pentecost and then what he came to be after Pentecost. But this story in chapter 3, uh, in, in, in the first verses, illustrates the profound uh, transformation that they saw and that they were able to witness. So this, this man who was lame from birth uh, was at the temple gate called Beautiful. Uh, and he couldn't walk, and he was never able to walk, and no one uh, could help him with his problem. People could adjust the quality of the sound because the man who was healed is standing there in front of them, almost as incontrovertible evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. Okay, so 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 transformation is, is not the only thing. We're going to go and look at some other things, but it is an amazing thing the way this man's life was changed. I, I don't have time to go into great detail this morning, but if you look at the rest of chapter three, what you'll see is that Peter and John aren't focusing primarily on the bodily transformation of this person. There's something to say about that with regard to the future and the truth that God, when he brings all the nations together under Christ, will also heal people bodily. But that's not the emphasis now. The emphasis now is that the the bodily healing transformation uh, is really one of the driving forces, I I think, of the early church. And... uh, I've just got this picture up of, of some men in Moldova. Uh, Moldova's an interesting country. Anyone been to Moldova? <laughs> Brilliant. In 1996, I think the English had their quarter, quarter finals for the, or qualification match for the World Cup, and nobody knew where Moldova was. So someone invented a game called Where in the World is Moldova, which you can, which you can buy on Amazon. I wanted to buy it just for the fun of it, but it's about 36 pounds, although I'm not doing that. Uh, but, but, but Moldova's over there, you know, tucked, tucked away between uh, Romania and Ukraine. It's an incredibly poor country. There are four million Moldovans. Two million of them ha- have left, and the other two million are queuing up to leave. It's a place of incredible brokenness. And one of the, dis- one of the expressions of that brokenness is the great institutions uh, where children are housed who have mental or physical uh, limitations. Uh, and there are also institutions for adults. And they're much, much better now than they were uh, in, in, in the days of communism uh, and what we saw on our television screens in the 90s. But they're still incredibly awful, horrific places. I, I, I went into the institution where these guys live in uh, Badi Chen, uh, up in the northeast of Moldova. And honestly, I've been, I've been in slums all over the world and seen all kinds of things. Uh, and this place... Uh, is the most horrific place in terms of the, the way it affected my senses as I walked in. Just the, 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 the kind of palpable evil, you know, and, uh, and the smell of sickness and, 
feces and urine and people being violent and the, the, the brokenness of the human bodies and just everything was, on, was so visceral. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But there's a team that worked there. Anyway, that's the point. There's a team that worked there and these five guys with others uh, have been brought out of the institutions and are housed in homes with families in the communities now. Uh, this was the first home. There are now four homes, and the team are building more and more homes to help people come out of the institutions and reintegrate into society. And in the process, these men, uh, uh, apart from the guy down here on, the, on, the, on, on your left with the blue uh, hat on, uh, 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 Grisha, apart from him, the men and the women and others who have come out have come to faith in Jesus as well. And the, f- the transformation is phenomenal. It really is. It's overwhelming. Uh, and, and some of you know, have <laughs> you seen this before, haven't you yourself? I, I, when I was there one evening, the first evening I was there, it was minus 15 in the day, uh, beautiful sky. Then I went to the institution, was sort of moved from the, the wonder of nature to the shock of uh, you know, the, the consequences of depravity in our world. And then back into this home where these guys had been changed. Uh, and the pastor who was there as well with his family for the evening meal said to me, would you do devotions, please, after the meal? So we finished eating and we were, we were, we were kind of talking. I opened my Bible and I couldn't say anything. I just cried because of the extremes, you know, of, of what I'd seen and experienced in the day. Such wonderful transformation. Not complete, but great transformation. And I think that is one of the things that motivates the early church uh, and can motivate us to where we are. There is nothing uh, that transforms as the gospel does. And that's what we move on to now, the second point, uh, this reading uh, in chapter 4. The the, the question emerges then, okay, so this man has been healed. By what power was he healed? How did you do this? Okay, Uh, what is the authority that you're using to bring about this kind of change in people's lives? I I work with a guy called Mez McConnell, uh, who uh, is planting a church up in Edinburgh and looking to plant more churches, and uh, and and it's a wonderful mission. Uh, And the church in Nidri, in a very deprived area of Scotland, is growing, and people's lives are changing. And one of the members of Parliament went to visit, and he wants to know how Mez is doing this. Okay, how are you managing to change people's lives out of drugs and out of alcoholism and out of broken relationships? How are you doing this? And so Peter explains uh, that it is done by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you build as rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which he must be saved. I think the second thing that really compelled the early church was their understanding of Jesus as the risen Lord, the one to whom all authority had been given under heaven and earth. And we get this all the way through this section. You know, the, the, the early church expressing its understanding of the identity and the work of Jesus. And I guess that's one of the threats to mission and always has been, hasn't it? You know, what is it that changes people? You know, is it education that changes people? Is it, is it economics that changes people? Is it politics? Uh, is it med- medicine? You know, what, what is it that changes people? And, and, and of course, it's not necessarily Jesus without those things. Jesus may imply some of those things. But, but, but it begins and ends with him, doesn't it? And that's what the early church are clear about. They're so, they're so spellbound, I think, by who Jesus is. And they're so weighed down, if you can say that, by his authority. 
that they cannot do anything but uh, go out uh, and speak of him. And of course, they see the consequences, sometimes rejection, uh, but also the transformation that we were talking about, the, the identity and the work of Jesus. I'm not going to go into great detail, like I said, but the truth that Jesus is Lord. Uh, it's, it's an amazing truth, isn't it? And Mez up in Scotland said to this uh, MP, he said, uh, do you want to know what changes people? He said, Jesus changes people, and he's the only one. And if you want to work with me to help make Jesus known, then come and join me. Uh, and, uh, and if you want me to talk to your parliament about how wonderful Jesus is, because he can change people's lives, I'll come and talk to your parliament. Let me know. Uh, the guy hasn't been in touch with him since. Uh, but, 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 you know, it, I, I, I think we, we, maybe in the West we're losing sermon because the next bit's about the Father, God, and the, the final bit's about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so you, you, you can see where we're going, and I'll, I'll keep it brief because our time is running out. But th- th- this, is, this is so clear, too, in these chapters. You know, uh, when, when, the, when Peter and John uh, are released, they go back to the church family, and they pray. Okay, so, so we've seen transformation. We've seen who, who they think brings about that transformation. It's not finance. It's not religion. It's, it's, it's Christ. Uh, and now... Under pressure, they come together in prayer before God. God sitting in the heavens and laughing. They look at, they look at history uh, and see God's sovereignty over history through all that has happened in history, bringing about his purposes because he is sovereign over everything. But then here, in this particular situation, they say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But, verse 28 of chapter 4, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that one of the most incredible statements in Scripture? The early church understands the sovereignty of God, not just in creation and not just in, the, in history, but supremely in the cross. Because on the cross, we have on display what the powers that are aligned uh, up against God are capable of doing. Okay? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, and behind that, of course, the satanic influences, all the powers, apart from those who are following Christ who had already confessed his name, all the powers gathered their forces together uh, and spent them on Christ, the anointed Son of God. And they managed to put him to death. Okay? The, the things that evil can accomplish are phenomenal. They're devastating all over the world today. Suffering is one of the biggest problems, isn't it? All over our world today. And here he suffers. But when they were spending their most violent and their most strategic purposes on the Son of God to overthrow God, they were doing exactly what God beforehand had determined they would do. God is able to use... This is, I think there's a big mystery here, and we certainly don't have time to go, to go into it this morning. There's a great mystery here, but God is able to use. God is using all the evil acts that are happening in our world, that have happened to us in our lives, and he is bringing out a greater good than could have happened if those things hadn't taken place. And so they see God here through the cross as the sovereign God 
And that's partly what keeps them going as well. This is not from uh, the modern missionary scene, but this is, uh, Roz and I are going to a conference in Istanbul tomorrow morning. And uh, we're going to see the church in which John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, was a pastor. And uh, uh, the emperor didn't like Chrysostom, and so Chrysostom was hauled up to the emperor. And this is a transcript of one of their conversations. The emperor said, we will banish you for preaching the gospel. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's home. Well then, said the emperor, we will execute you. <laughs> okay, fine, if you want to play this game, let's ratchet up the, uh, the possibilities here. Chrysostom replied, you cannot, my life is hidden in Christ. I'd love to have seen the emperor's face at this point. Uh, then, said the emperor, we will dis- dispossess you of your estate. It seems to me he spent his worst possible thing first. Now it's getting less threatening, isn't it? You, you, we will dispossess you of your estate. Chrysostom, you cannot, my treasure is in heaven. Well then, said the emperor, we will put you in solitary confinement. Chrysostom replied, you cannot, for I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. In fact, I defy you. There is nothing that you can do to hurt me. And I really don't think that was triumphalistic, and I really don't think that was vindictive. I think spoken from humility, the humility that we see here in Acts 4 in the early church, that kind of humility, that kind of trust in the sovereignty of God is the kind of trust that helps people to shine brightly where they are and for that light to go far. And then finally, uh, the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't, guys, I don't know what you shave with if you shave. I use a Gillette uh, blade, and I've moved down from five knives to, four, to two. I was cut, you know, in danger of cutting my ears off on a morning, uh, so now I'm down to the two-blade one. <laughs> But I, I have a, a clear memory of the Gillette advertisement from maybe more in the 80s uh, with David Beckham and Thierry Henry. And I, I don't know who it is now. I'm not, I don't follow it enough. Uh, but the, the, in my mind, the, 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 the picture of David Beckham shaving one morning uh, and his incredible jawline, you know, and, and, and me thinking, hmm, if I get that blade, maybe, you know. Uh, and then the mirror is slightly tilted, isn't it? And, and you look down and, uh, and you see his six-pack. And, uh, and, I, and, and our mirror swivels naturally. I've tried to tighten it so that it doesn't swivel, uh, but it does. And every now and then I realize, no, it, well, if there is one, it's well hidden, or perhaps it's on my back like Homer Simpson's, I don't know. Uh, but, but, but Gillette, and I think L'Oreal, you know, because you're worth it, they, they, they've tapped into... Uh, what for many of us is the experience of our lives. We experience our vulnerability and we experience our frailty, our weakness. Uh, and certainly as Christians, uh, you know, we have, this, we have this treasure in jars of clay uh, and it's incredibly difficult uh, to, to hold together the jar of clay experience of my existence uh, and the, what ought to be the overriding confidence, perhaps, that comes from this treasure being within. And we see that in these chapters. I mean, Acts chapter 1 and 2, there's this incredible display of power the Holy Spirit has poured out. It's phenomenal. But the moment you hit chapter 3, the early church looks very vulnerable. It's frail. It's being beaten up by the leaders, by the rulers, by the, those who are in authority. And it doesn't look strong at all. But interwoven through these three chapters, Luke, of course, wants to remind us that that powerful spirit who was poured out because of the cross and who will be with us until Jesus returns is nonetheless active. 
He's active when we see his great demonstrations of power, but he's also active uh, when it doesn't look like he is. When I step out of my door on a Monday morning, when I take a group of international students around Oxford on a rainy Sunday afternoon, possibly, uh, who knows? I feel weak. I know my weakness. I know my sinfulness. But these chapters display, I think, for us so wonderfully that what helped the early church is their knowledge, their faith, that the Holy Spirit was present and enabling them all the way, all the time, even when they were having to give answers uh, to the leaders of their day, even when they were being persecuted and and spread out. All the time, the Holy Spirit was active uh, and giving people the words to say and helping them with the thoughts they needed to think and helping them with courage to overcome their fear or their, their, their sense of shyness or timidity. The Spirit is present. And so I've just given two illustrations, Acts 4.31, Acts 4.8, but all the way through these three chapters, there are, the, there are subtle references to the Holy Spirit who is still present and still active. And uh, th- there is an undoubted sense that the early church uh, depended on the Holy Spirit like we, like we need to. And perhaps it's a, a different emphasis from a lot of the emphasis there is on the Spirit uh, in our day in the Western world where we can afford that luxury. You, you mentioned UAE in the list of countries where the church is growing rapidly, one of the top ten countries. I, 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 someone may be able to correct me. Uh, please do uh, afterwards. I don't think there are any known Emirati believers. The growth in the stats in, in books like Operation World is from expatriates and uh, other, other uh, people living and working in uh, Emirates, so Filipinos, Indians, Pakistanis, uh, increasingly Western people as well, some Africans. Uh, 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 this family uh, worked there for uh, 10 years, and they, they, they never came across uh, an Emirati who is following Jesus. And they never saw anyone come to faith in Jesus uh, from the Emirati nation while they were there. And I suppose that's why I have that picture up there. They're an ordinary family, and they were, they were heartbroken, heartbroken over those years, praying, talking, living, serving, sacrificially giving everything to help people come to know Jesus. But no one ever did, and now they're back in the UK. <laughs> they're praying that maybe God will send others, and God will open the door, and that God will somehow build his church in the Emirates. Uh, and he is, in a way, but we need to pray uh, for the Emirati nation. But, but I suppose what I'm saying is... Uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit was with them, even though the 100 million that have turned to faith in China aren't being represented in the Emirates in the same way, or that, that, that level of power uh, or demonstration. So the Holy Spirit motivated uh, the people. And I suppose uh, at the end of these chapters, uh, the church gets thrust out. Peter and John come out of prison, don't they? And they're told, basically, don't, uh, don't get introverted like uh, the UK church is in danger of doing. Uh, by introverted, I mean, you know, being overly concerned about the UK. We need to be. You know, we need to be, don't we? Incredibly concerned about the UK. But we also need to have a global perspective. And so the, the church is told to go and stand in the temple courts from where the message will be thrust out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and to tell the people the full message of this new life. John Piper, in his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, in one chapter, puts it like this. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshippers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
he has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us, for the sake of his name, join his global purpose.